Chapter Four of *The Hound from the North* by Ridgewell Cullum. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. Chapter Four: Yellow Booming Slump in Grey. The days are long since gone when the name of the Midland Territory of the Great Canadian World, Manitoba, suggested to the uninitiated nothing but Red Indians, Buffalo, and Desperados of every sort and condition. Nowadays it is well known, even in remote parts of the world, as one of the earth's greatest granaries, a land of rolling pastures, golden cornfields, and prosperous simple farm folk. In a short space of time, little more than a quarter of a century, this section of the country has been elevated from the profound obscurity of a lawless wilderness to one of the most thriving provinces of a great dominion. The old Fort Garry, one of the oldest factories of the Hudson's Bay Company, has given place to the magnificent city of Winnipeg, with its own university, its own governing assembly, its own clubs, hotels, its own world-wide commercial interests, besides being the great centre of railway traffic in the country. All these things, and many other indications of splendid prosperity too numerous to mention, have grown up in a little over twenty-five years. And with this growth, the buffalo has gone, the red man has been herded on to a limited reservation, and the bad man is almost an unknown quantity. Such is the Manitoba of today. But during the stages of Manitoba's transition, its history is interesting. The fight between law and lawlessness was long and arduous, the pitched battles many and frequent. Buffalo could be killed off quickly, the red man was but a poor thing after the collapse of the Riel rebellion, but the bad man died hard. This is the period in the history of Manitoba which at present interests us. When Winnipeg was building with a rapidity almost rivalling that of the second Chicago, and the army of older farmers in the land was being hastily augmented by recruits from the mother country, when the military police had withdrawn their forces to the Northwest Territories, leaving only detachments to hold the American border against the desperados which both countries were equally anxious to be rid of. In the remote southeastern corner of the province, forty-five miles from the nearest town, which happened to be the village of Ainsley, dumped down on the crest of a far-reaching ocean-like swell of rolling prairie, bare to the blast of the four winds except for the insignificant shelter of a small bluff on its northeastern side, stood a large farmhouse surrounded by a small village of barns and outbuildings. It was a typical Canadian farm of the older western type, one of those places which had grown by degrees from the one central hut of logs, clay, and thatch, to the more pretentious proportions of the modern frame-building of red pine weatherboarding with shingled roofing to match, and the whole coloured with paint of a deep port-wine hue, the points and angles being picked out with a dazzling white. It was a farm, let there be no mistake, and not merely a homestead. There were abundant signs of prosperity in the trim, well-groomed appearance of the place. The unmistakable hallmark was to be found in the presence of a steam-thresher, buried beneath a covering of tarpaulin and snow, in the array of farming machinery, and in the maze of pastures enclosed by top-railed barbed-wire fencing. All these things, and the extent of the buildings, told of years of ceaseless industry and thrift, of able management, and a proper pride in the vocation of its owner. 
nor were these outward signs in any way misleading silas mauling in his lifetime had been one of those sound-minded men unimaginative and practical the dominant note of whose creed had always been to do his duty in that state of life in which he found himself the son of an early pioneer he had been born to the life of a farmer and having the good fortune to follow in the footsteps of a thrifty father he had lived long enough to see his farm grow to an extent many times larger and more prosperous than that of any neighbour within a radius of a hundred miles but at the time of our story he had been gathered to his forefathers for nearly three years and his worthy spouse hepzibah mauling reigned in his stead she ruled with an equally practical hand and fortune had continued to smile upon her her bank balance had grown by leaps and bounds and she was known to be one of the richest women in southern manitoba and her only daughter prudence to be heiress to no inconsiderable fortune there was a son in the family but he had eschewed the farm life and passing out of the home circle as some sons will had gone into the world to seek his own way his own experiences of life in spite of the wealth of the owners of loon dyke farm they were very simple unpretentious folk they lived the life they had always known abiding by the customs of childhood and the country to which they belonged with the whole-hearted regard which is now becoming so regrettably rare their world was a wholesome one which provided them with all they needed for thought labour and recreation to journey to winnipeg a distance of a hundred and twenty-six miles was an event which required two days preparation and as many weeks of consideration ainsley one of those little border villages which dot the international boundary dividing canada from the united states was a place rarely visited by them and when undertaken the trip was regarded as a notable jaunt just now mrs mauling was a prey to the wildest excitement an event was about to happen which disturbed her to a degree it is doubtful as to what feeling was uppermost in her motherly bosom she was torn between many conflicting emotions joy grief pleasurable excitement her daughter her only child as she was wont to confide to her matronly friends for her boy whom she loved as only a mother can love a son she believed she would never see again was about to be married no visit to town not even a sea voyage across the ocean could possibly compare with this it was a more significant event in her life even than when she went into winnipeg to choose the monument which was to be erected over the grave of her dear departed silas that she had always had in her mind's eye not because she looked forward to his demise but because she hoped some day to share with him its sheltering canopy but somehow this forthcoming marriage of her daughter was in the nature of a shock to her she was not mercenary far from it she was above any such motive as that but she had hoped when the time came for such matters to be considered that prudence would have married a certain rancher who lived out by the lake of the woods a man of great wealth and a man whom mrs mauling considered desirable in every way instead of that prudence had chosen for herself amongst her many suitors and worst of all she had chosen an insignificant official in the customs department that to hepzibah mauling was the worst blow of all with proper motherly pride she had hoped that her girl would have married a someone in her own world the winter evening shadows it was the middle of january and winter still held sway upon the prairie 
were falling and the parlour at the farm was enveloped in a grey dusk the room was large low-ceilinged and of irregular shape it was furnished to serve many purposes principally with a view to solid comfort there was no blatant display of wealth and every article of furniture bore signs of long though careful use the spotless boarded floor was bare of carpet but was strewn with rough cured skins timber-wolf antelope coyote and bear and here and there rugs of undoubted home make these latter of the patchwork order the centre table was of wide proportions and of solid mahogany and told of the many services of the apartment the small chairs were old-fashioned mahogany pieces with horsehair seats while the easy chairs and there were several of these were capacious and of diverse descriptions a well-worn sofa was stowed away in an obscure angle and a piano with a rose silk front and fretwork occupied another of the many dark corners which the room possessed the whole atmosphere of the place was of extreme comfort the bare description of furniture conveys nothing but the comfort was there and showed out in the odds and ends of family possessions which were in evidence everywhere the grandfather's clock the sewing-machine the quaint old oil-lamps upon the mantelboard over the place where the fire should have been but was not the soft hangings and curious old family pictures and discoloured engravings the perfect femininity of the room in all respects it was a canadian farm best parlour there were four occupants of the room two old ladies rotund and garbed in modest raiment of some sort of dark clinging material were gathered about the monster self-feeding stove seated in armchairs in keeping with their ample proportions one was the widow of the late silas malling and the other was the school-ma'am from the leonville schoolhouse this good lady rejoiced in the name of gurridge and mrs gurridge was the oldest friend of hepzibah malling a fact which spoke highly for the former good dame's many excellent qualities hepzibah was not a woman to set her affections on her sex without good reason her moral standard was high and though she was ever ready to show kindliness to her fellow-creatures she was far too practical and honest herself to take to her motherly bosom any one who was not worthy of regard as was natural they were talking of the forthcoming marriage and the tone of their lowered voices indicated that their remarks were in the nature of confidences mrs malling was sitting bolt upright and her plump rather rough hands were folded in her broad lap mrs gurridge was leaning towards the stove gazing into the fire through the mica sides of the fire-box i trust they will be happy said mrs gurridge with a sigh then as an afterthought he seems all right yes mrs malling said with a responsive exhalation i think so he has few faults but he is not the man to follow my silas on this farm i truly believe sarah that he couldn't tell the difference between a cabbage-field and a potato-patch these what do you call em's civil servants are only fit to tot up figures and play around with a woman's wardrobe every time she crosses the border thank goodness i'm not of the travelling kind i'm sure i should hide my face for very shame every time i saw a customs officer the round rosy face of the farm-wife assumed a deeper hue and her still comely lips were pursed into an indignant moo her smooth grey head adorned by a black lace cap trimmed with pearl beads was turned in the direction of the two other occupants of the room who were more or less buried in the obscurity of a distant corner 
For a moment she gazed at the dimly outlined figure of a man, who was seated on one of the horsehair chairs, leaning towards the sofa, on which reclined the form of her daughter Prudence. His elbows were resting on his knees, and his chin was supported upon his two clenched fists. He was talking earnestly. Mrs. Malling watched him for some moments, then her eyes drifted to the girl, the object of her solicitude. Although the latter was in the shadow, her features were, even at this distance, plainly discernible. There was a strong resemblance between mother and daughter. They were both of medium-dark complexion with strong colouring. Both were possessed of delightfully sweet brown eyes, and mouths and chins firm but shapely. The one remarkable difference between them was in the nasal organ. While the mother's was short, well-rounded, and what one would call pretty, though ordinary, the girl's was prominent and aquiline, with a decided bridge. This feature gave the younger woman a remarkable amount of character to her face. Altogether hers was a face which, wherever she went, would inevitably attract admiring attention. Just now she was evidently teasing the man before her, and the mother turned back to the stove with a merry twinkle in her eyes. "'I think Prudence will teach him a few lessons,' she murmured to her friend. "'What, about the farm?' "'Well, I wasn't just thinking of the farm.' The two ladies smiled into each other's faces. "'She is a good child,' observed Mrs. Gurridge affectionately after a while. "'Or she wouldn't be her father's child.' "'Or your daughter, Hepzibah,' said Sarah Gurridge sincerely. The two relapsed into silence. The glowing coals in the stove shook lower and received augmentation from the supply above. Darkness was drawing on. Prudence was holding the free press out towards the dying light, and the man was protesting. The latter is already known to us. His name was Leslie Gray, now an under-official of the Customs Department at the border village of Ainsley. "'Don't strain your eyes in this light, dear,' he was saying. "'Besides, I want to talk to you.' He laid his hand over the paper to take it from her, but the girl quickly withdrew it, out of his reach. "'You must let me look at the personal column, Leslie,' she said teasingly. "'I just love it. What do you call it? The agony column, isn't it?' "'Yes,' the man answered with some show of irritation. "'But I want—' "'Of course you do,' the girl interrupted. "'You want to talk to me, very right and proper. But listen to this.' Gray bit his lip. Prudence bent her face close to the paper and read in a solemn whisper, "'Yellow booming! Slump in grey!' Now I wonder what that means. Do you think it's a disguised love message to some forlorn damsel in the East, or does it conceal the heart-rending cry of a lost soul to some fond but angry parent? Then, as the man did not immediately answer, she went on with a pucker of thought upon her brow. Yellow! That might mean gold! Booming! Ah, yes, the Kootenay mines, or the Yukon. There's going to be a rush there this year, isn't there? Oh, I forgot, with real contrition, I mustn't mention the Yukon, must I? That is where your disaster occurred that caused you to be banished to the one-horsed station of Ainsley. Not forgetting the reduction of my salary to the princely sum of two thousand dollars per annum, Gray added bitterly. Never mind, old boy, it brought us together, and dollars aren't likely to trouble us any. But let me get on with my puzzle slump in grey that's funny isn't it slump certainly has to do with business 
I've seen slump in the finance columns of the Toronto Globe. And then, Gray, that's your name. I believe so. Um, I guess I can't make much of it. Seems to me it must be some business message. I call it real disappointing. Perhaps not so disappointing as you think, sweetheart, Gray said thoughtfully. What, do you understand it? The girl at once became all interest. Yes, slowly. I understand it, but I don't know that I ought to tell you. Of course you must. I'm just dying of curiosity. Besides, she went on coaxingly, we are going to be married, and it wouldn't be right to have any secrets from me. Dear old Gurridge never lost an opportunity of firing sage maxims at us when I used to go to her school. I think the one to suit this occasion ran something like this. Secrets withheld, twixt man and wife, infallibly end in connubial strife. She always made her rhymes up as she went along. She's a sweet old dear, but so funny. But Gray was not heeding the girl's chatter. His face was serious, and his obstinate mouth was tight shut. He was gazing with introspective eyes at the paper which was now lying in the girl's lap. Suddenly he leaned further forward and spoke almost in a whisper. Look here, Prue. I want you to listen seriously to what I have to say. I'm not a man given to undue hopefulness. I generally take my own way in things and see it through, whether that way is right or wrong. So far I've had some successes and more failures. If I were given to dreaming or repining, I should say fate was dead against me. That last smasher I came in the mountains, when I lost the government bullion, nearly settled me altogether. But in spite of it all, I haven't given up hope yet. And what is more, I anticipate making a big coup shortly, which will reinstate me in favour with the heads of my department. My coup is in connection with the notice you have just read out from the agony column. The girl nodded. She was quite serious now. Gray paused, and the ticking of the grandfather's clock on the other side of the room pounded heavily in the twilight. The murmur of the old lady's voices occasionally reached the lovers, but it did not interrupt them or divert their attention from their own affairs. That notice, Gray went on, has appeared at regular intervals in the paper, and is a message to certain agents from a certain man to say that certain illicit work has been carried out. I have discovered who this man is, and the nature of his work. It does not matter who he is or what the work. In fact, it would be dangerous to mention either, even here. The point is that I have discovered the secret, and I alone am going to benefit by my discovery. I am not going to let anyone share the reward with me. I want to reinstate myself with the authorities, and so regain my lost position. Then no one will be able to say things about my marriage with you. No one had better say anything against you in my hearing anyway, Leslie, the girl put in quickly. Because I happen to be rich, or shall be, is nothing to do with anyone but myself. As far as I can see, it will be a blessing. Go on. No doubt it is as you say, dear, the man pursued. But there are plenty of people unkind enough to believe that I am marrying you for your money. However, I am going to get this man red-handed, and I tell you it'll be the greatest coup of my life. I hope you will succeed, Leslie, the girl said, her brown eyes fixed in admiration upon her lover. Do you know, I never thought you were such a determined fellow, she added impulsively. Why, 
I can almost believe that you'd learn to farm if you took the notion. Gray's sense of humour was not equal to the occasion, and he took a remark quite seriously. A man must be a fool if he can't run a farm, he said roughly. Many folks labour under that mistake, the girl replied. Then, say, when are you going to do this thing? Strangely enough, the critical moment will come two days after our marriage. Let's see, this is Monday. We are to be married tomorrow week. That will make it Thursday week. The girl sat herself up on the sofa, and her young face expressed dismay. Right in the middle of our honeymoon? Oh, Leslie! It can't be helped, dearest. I shall only be away from you for that afternoon and the night. Think of what it means to me, everything. Ah, yes. She sank back again upon the sofa. There was the faintest glimmer of a smile in the depths of her dark eyes. I forgot what it meant to you. The unconscious irony of her words fell upon stony ground. Prudence Malling was deeply in love with Leslie Gray. How few men fully appreciate the priceless treasure of a good woman's regard. If I bring this off, it means immediate promotion, Gray went on in his blindly selfish way. I must succeed. I hate failure. They will take you off the border, then, said the girl musingly. That will mean leaving here. Which also means a big step up. Of course, it will mean a big step up. The girl sighed. She loved the farm, that home which she had always known. She changed the subject suddenly. It must be nearly tea-time. We are going to have tea early, Leslie, so that we can get through it comfortably before the people come. Oh, yes, I forgot you are having a progressive euchre party tonight. What time does it begin? I mean the party. Seven o'clock. But you are going to stay to tea? Gray glanced up at the yellow face of the grandfather's clock and shook his head. Afraid not, little girl. I've got some work to do in connection with Thursday week. I will drop in about nine o'clock. Who are coming? Is it really necessary, this work? There was a touch of bitterness in Prudence's voice, but the next moment she went on cheerfully. She would not allow herself to stand in her lover's way. The usual people are coming. It will be just our monthly gathering of neighbouring moss-backs, with a laugh. The Turners, the Furrers, Peter Furrers, of course, he still hopes to cut you out, and the girls, old Glycan and his two sons, Harry and Tim, and the Ganthorns from Rosebank, and their cousins the Covels of Lakeville, and, I almost forgot him, Mother's Flame, George Iredale of Lonely Ranch. Is Iredale coming? It's too bad of you to have him here, Prue. Your mother's flame. Mm, I don't like that. Why, he's been after you for over three years. It's not right to ask him when I am here. Besides, Gray broke off abruptly. Darkness hid the angry flush which had spread over his face. The girl knew he was angry. His tone was raised, and there was no mistaking Leslie Gray's anger. He was very nearly a gentleman, but not quite. I think I have a perfect right to ask him, Leslie she answered seriously. His coming can make no possible difference to you. Frankly, I like him, but that makes no difference to my love for you. Why, you dear, silly thing, if he asked me from now till doomsday I wouldn't marry him. He's just a real good friend. But still, if it will please you, I don't mind admitting that mother insisted on his coming, and that I had nothing to do with it. 
That is why I call him Mother's Flame. Now then, take that ugly frown off your face and say you're sorry. Gray showed no sign of obedience. He was very angry. It was believed and put about by the busybodies of the district that George Iredale had sought Prudence Malling in marriage ever since she had grown up. He was a bachelor of close upon forty, one of those quiet, determined men, slow of speech, even clumsy, but quick to make up their minds, and endowed with a great tenacity of purpose, a man who rarely said he was going to do a thing, but generally did it. These known features in a man who, up to the time of the announcement of Prudence's engagement to Gray, had been a frequent visitor to the farm, and who was also well known to be wealthy and more than approved of by Mrs. Malling, no doubt gave a certain amount of colour to the belief of those who chose to pry into their neighbours' affairs. "'Anyway, I don't think there is room for both Iredale and myself in the house,' Gray went on heatedly. "'If you didn't want him, you should have put your foot down on your mother's suggestion. I don't think I shall come to-night.' For one moment the girl looked squarely into her lover's face, and her pretty lips drew sharply together. Then she spoke quite coldly. "'You will, or I'll never speak to you again. You are very foolish to make such a fuss.' There was a long silence between the lovers. Then Gray drew out his watch, opened it, glanced at the time, and snapped it closed again. "'I must go,' he said shortly. Prudence had risen from the sofa. She no longer seemed to heed her lover. She was looking across the darkened room at the homely picture round the glowing stove. "'Very well,' she said, and she moved away from the man's side. The two old ladies, pausing in their conversation, heard Gray's announcement and the answer Prudence made. Sarah Gurridge leaned towards her companion with a confidential movement of the head. The two grey heads came close together. The school ma'am whispered impressively, "'Maid who angers faithful swain will shed more tears and no more pain than she who loves and loves in vain.' Hepzibah laughed tolerantly. Sarah's earnestness never failed to amuse her. "'My dear,' the girl's mother murmured back, when her comfortable laugh had gurgled itself out, "'young folks must skit-scat and bicker, or where would be the making up? "'La, I'm sure when I was a girl I used to tweak my poor Silas's nose "'for the love of making him angry. "'Silas had a long nose, my dear, as you may remember. "'Men hate to be tweaked, especially on their weak points. "'My Silas was always silly about his nose.' and we never had less than half an hour's making up. I wonder how Prudence has tweaked Mr. Gray. I can't bring myself to call him Leslie, my dear. Prudence had reached her mother's side. The two old heads parted with guilty suddenness. Oh, my dear, exclaimed Mrs. Malling, how you did startle me. I'm sorry, mother, the girl said, but I wanted to tell you that Leslie is not coming tonight. Prudence turned a mischievous face towards her lover. Mrs. Malling wrinkled up her smooth forehead. She assumed an air of surprise. "'Why not, my child?' "'Oh, because you have asked Mr. Iredale. Leslie says it isn't right.' Prudence was still looking in her lover's direction. He had his back turned. He was more angry now than ever. "'My dears,' said her mother with an indulgent smile, "'you are a pair of silly noodles. But Mr. Gray, I mean Leslie, must please himself.' "'George Iredale is coming because I have asked him. "'This house is yours to come and go to as you like, er, Leslie. 
George Iredale has promised to come to the cards to-night. Did I hear you say you were going now? I should have taken it homely if you would have stayed to tea. The party begins at seven, don't forget. Three pairs of quizzical eyes were fixed upon Gray's good-looking but angry face. His anger was against Prudence entirely now. She had made him look foolish before these two ladies, and that was not easily to be forgiven. Gray's lack of humour made him view things in a ponderous light. He felt most uncomfortable under the laughing gaze of those three ladies. However, he would not give way an inch. "'Yes, I must go now,' he said ungraciously. "'But not on account of George Iredale,' he added blunderingly. "'I have some important work to do.' He was interrupted by a suppressed laugh from Prudence. He turned upon her suddenly, glared, then walked abruptly to the door. "'Good-bye,' he exclaimed shortly, and the door closed sharply behind him. "'Why, Prudence,' said Mrs. Malling, turning her round, laughing face to her daughter and indicating the door. "'Aren't you?' "'No, I'm not, mother dear,' the girl answered with a forced laugh. Sarah Gurridge patted her late pupil's shoulder affectionately, but her head shook gravely as though a weight of worldly wisdom was hers. "'I don't think he'll stay away,' said the mother with a tender glance in the girl's direction. "'He hasn't chin enough,' said Sarah, who prided herself upon her understanding of physiognomy. "'Indeed he has,' retorted Prudence, who heard the remark. Mrs. Malling was right. Leslie Gray was not going to stay away. He had no intention of doing so. But his reasons were quite apart from those Hepzibah Malling attributed to him. He wished to see George Iredale, and because of the man's coming, Gray would forgo his angry desire to retaliate upon Prudence. He quite ignored what he was pleased to call his own pride in the matter. He would come because he had what he considered excellent reasons for doing so. Prudence lit the lamps and laid the table for tea. Her mother ambled off to the great kitchen as fast as her bulk would allow her. There were many things in that wonderful place to see to for the supper, and on these occasions Mrs. Malling would not trust their supervision even to Prudence, much less to the hired girl, Mary. Sarah Gurridge remained in her seat by the stove, watching the glowing coals dreamily, her mind galloping ahead through fanciful scenes of her own imagination. Had she been asked, she would probably have stated that she was looking forward into the future of the pair who were soon to be married. Prudence went on quietly and nimbly with her work. Presently Sarah turned, and after a moment's intent gaze at the trim, rounded figure, said in her profoundest tone, Harvest your wheat ere the August frost. One breath of cold and the crop is lost. Oh, bother! There, I've set a place for Leslie, exclaimed Prudence in a tone of vexation. What is that about frost and lost? Nothing, dear, I was only thinking aloud, said Sarah Gurridge. And Sarah Gurridge relapsed into silence and continued to bask in the warm glow of the stove. End of chapter 4